0: COP28 has delivered a landmark milestone in terms of really with a clarity unprecedented and this is the first time ever in human history that we decided to transition away from fossil fuels
1: transition does leave a lot unanswered and a lot sort of up in the air it's certainly not proposing radical change
2: Uh, I think it's um, very positive for China and the United States to sign the Sunnyland Declaration before this COP28 to pave the way for today's relative success. The Chat Lounge.
0: Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
1: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: Hello and welcome to Chat Lounge, I'm Zhao Ying. Almost 200 countries have adopted the first-ever UN climate deal that calls for the world to transition away from fossil fuels. The deal comes after two weeks of hard-fought negotiations at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai. COP28 President Sultan al Jaber hailed the deal as historical and said it offered a robust plan to keep the target of 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach, but added a note of caution for nations.
2: Here let me
0: sound a word of caution. An agreement is only as good as its implementation. We are what we do, not what we say. We must take the steps necessary to turn this agreement into tangible actions. If we unite in action, we can have a profoundly positive effect
2: on all our futures.
3: With the first ever call to move away from fossil fuels, what implications does this hold for the future of humanity? And how can the international community ensure that commitments translate into tangible, real-world actions. Joining our discussion today, Wu Changhua, Acting Chair of the Governing Council of Asia-Pacific Water Forum. Ma Jun, director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO, and Mike a senior lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. Welcome to you all, and uh, Changhua, let me start with you. Um, the, the COP28 summit has reached a historic agreement to transition away from all fossil fuels. How would you view the significance of this deal?
0: Thank you for having me on the program and delighted to be on this program with June and Mike as well. Uh, definitely uh, COP28 has delivered a landmark milestone in terms of really with the clarity, unprecedented, uh, the first time ever in human history that we decided to transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, so from that perspective, I think it's really historic and the landmark uh, milestones there. Uh, the reason why it is so important or significant is that uh, the global economy, our infrastructure, and uh, you know everything actually around us uh, has been built upon fossil fuels, right? And just imagining, we decided to shift away from the current system, energy system, infrastructure, everything, and really move towards a totally, you know, sort of brand new uh, clean energy-based infrastructure. Uh, that's fundamental, that's dramatic, and that's even radical. And uh, so I'm delighted to see consensus reached by global community, uh, by all the nations at this moment, to say, yes, we are going to shift uh, uh, you know, transition away from fossil fuels, but more importantly, we need to sit down, calm down, and think about it. How do we transition, really drive the transition uh, you know, towards a cleaner future? Because we all know how difficult that's going to be. We need to build the new infrastructure, new energy system before we can tear down everything actually old. For many investments, investors, business, actually, uh, it, it's, it's a harder question to answer as well, because most of their assets will become a stranded asset if they do not really plan well, accelerate the transition, just imagining we're all going to lose actually on this side. And the society overall, we all need to be part of the solution. So hopefully somehow this is the beginning uh, of a new age and uh, globally it's called the beginning to end the fossil fuel era. Uh, So we need to work together and really make a better tomorrow together.
3: Yeah, and Mike, um, notably the agreement employs the term transition away instead of phase mm. out. So h- how would you interpret the nuanced difference between these expressions? And, and does it reflect a kind of compromise in, in the ambition for a radical transformation in our approach to fossil fuel consumption?
1: I think it does I think your latter point is very important. I think the, as, as your panelists just said, it's very, very uh, encouraging that, that there is a, a, a clear commitment now on the language used uh, to move away or to say transition away from fossil fuels, however, transition does leave a lot unanswered and a lot sort of up in the air. It's certainly not proposing radical change, no targets have been set, there doesn't appear to be uh, any real uh, commitment to this, this, whatever this transition means. So I think it is quite vague, and I suspect it really does mean a very, very slow, very gradual change. And again, accountability is the the key here. Who's actually gonna look at this again and and what what targets have been set. So transition in a way is is positive. It's a definite um, statement. Uh, Fossil fuels are on the way out. Uh, that, that's on the table now, and, and that can't really be changed. However, it doesn't really provide a very clear path. And I suspect we'll be we, we'll be talking about this probably this time next year. Uh, and, and similar language. You have to remember that the the, the countries and the host, the countries that actually um, shared this event, are major oil producing countries, and they can't change that quickly. So. We, we really do need something some some urgent change, I think, some some demonstrable change in the very, very near future.
3: Yeah, and, and so Mar, would you agree that um the language is perhaps a bit too vague and it's not strong enough? and and also we we see in the court that uh, a highlighted role for transitional fields. How how do we define this term? What kind of fuels are considered transitional in the context of this agreement?
2: Yes, first and foremost, I agree with Changpa and Mike uh, on their comments. I think this is uh, first, you know, a landmark deal uh, because uh, you know fossil fuel have played such a, a vital role uh, in 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 our human history. It's uh, powered the entire industrial revolution and bring the human civilization to the current level but in the meantime you know the, the downside of fossil fuel is that it's so much related uh, to the climate change uh, that the uh, uh, climate change uh, climate crisis that we're facing uh, taking China as an example you know um, uh, the uh, about 90 percent of our uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, is related uh, to our uh, fossil fuel consumption and production. So that's why you know it, it is quite crucial uh, to try to move away from the fossil fuel. But in the meantime, it's it going to be so difficult. It's uh, it's just so difficult to move away from from it. It is landmark deal because for so many countries, nearly 200 of them, to agree uh, to. Even just uh, with a, with a, such a such a compromised uh, term of uh, transition, uh, transitioning away, it is still a, a landmark deal because you know so many countries are in different gr- uh, development phases and, um, uh, and and with very different uh, energy structure and uh, some of them are highly reliable uh, on the. Uh, on on fossil fuel, uh, some of them are still have large number of population that still don't have access to sufficient energy, and uh, some of them are uh, oil uh, and uh, and fossil fuel producing country dependent on the on, on the on the income. So to to have all of them uh, agree uh, to a common goal, that uh, a vision that we're gonna move away from the fossil fuel. It's uh, it's absolutely landmark. It's not easy. Having said that, you know we must first try to try to transition. You know, find a way to transition from the current uh, structure and then try to uh, build a new uh, energy uh, structure before we scrap the old. Uh, so you asked me about this. Uh, you know, yes, this uh, UAE consensus uh, citing transitional fuel. I. My understanding is that this is uh, this is about uh, lower carbon um, fuel, such as uh, natural gas. Uh, Natural gas is uh, is part of the fossil fuel, but uh, but its carbon footprint is much much lower than coal and uh, relatively lower than oil. So uh, so so gas can natural gas can play some role uh, to help the decarbonization of our energy system to become uh, more smooth Uh, and some of the countries can decarbonize faster because they have access they have a lot of natural gas uh, or shale gas um, reserve Uh, to China unfortunately you know our natural gas reserve is very limited Uh, so uh, now with the driving geopolitical tension it means that uh, Uh, natural gas transitional fuel cannot be fully tapped
3: Mm -hmm. in China. Yeah, um, so uh, Changhua, as as Ma Jun just now said, um, fossil fuels played a vital role in human history and still in our society today. Um, and actually, the COP28 President Sultan Al Jaber, who is also the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, argued that a phase out of fossil fuels would hinder sustainable development and would take the world back into caves. So do you think he's just um, speaking on behalf of the interests of, of oil producers? Or do you feel there's validity to the argument that an immediate cessation of fossil fuel use could cause too much socioeconomic damage.
0: Well, uh, I never spoke to him, so I wouldn't be able really to speak, uh, to figure out what, what was in his mind when he said that. But I do have my level of understanding. I think the major concern is about a transition. Uh, so in the final documented the package, there are certain words actually used uh, to define, describe how we are going to transition. We use like a trust, Orderly, equitable. As of course, in the meantime, we need to accelerate there as well. Why do we have those words? Uh, because you know, different countries have different situations at different t- stages of development. So there's no way, you know, universally we're going to just do one thing uniformly, right? We have to uh, co- take into consideration of the common but differentiated responsibilities in respective capabilities. You know, besides this a- equitable, fair, justice sort of principles there as well. Just the imagining. Uh, If we say, okay, let's because now we decided to transition towards not, you know, uh, away from fossil fuels, we just abandon everything we have today without really building up anything for tomorrow. Of course, (laughs) where do we go? We we all go back to to caves, right? And uh, of course, that's going to be reality if that's the case. Uh, But of course, that's not the rational, reasonable way to do it. Uh, so, uh, on one side, I sort of understand why he was saying things like that, even though it's been controversial, uh, caused a lot of buzzing, actually, uh, you know, uh, rebels even, um, particularly from NGOs, most vulnerable countries, as well as the scientific community. But there is this side of uh, sort of a rightness, rightness, righteousness in a way that we have to make sure the transition is just, is orderly. Uh, and as well as equitable, Uh, while in the meantime, particularly for developed countries, they need to take the lead to really accelerate the transition process. They need to set the examples for other countries as well. In the meantime, they need to provide uh, the required financial support, support, technological support, as well as capacity building, in order to make sure all uh, all the emerging economies, uh, less developed countries actually being there with them and, uh, you know, ride on this sort of uh, wave and really, uh, do, you know, uh, on the transition uh, journey rather than being left behind.
3: Yeah, and 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 Mike, um, actually, uh, the climate advocate and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore has criticized the decision to hold this summit uh, in the UAE, which is a leading oil producer um, and also the appointment of Sultan Al Jabber, CEO of a state-owned oil company, as the conference President, so I mean, do you do you see the conflict of, uh, of interest there?
1: I think there has to be. I think it's quite difficult to ignore this, and it, it is quite uh, again. While let's be positive, let's be optimistic that there was uh, very very strong language about the transition, about the need to move away from fossil fuels. The hosts, and in particular the person hosting uh, the event, are probably not the most suitable. I think that that's beyond doubt. However, it's that sort of it, it, it that that is the industry, and that is a representative of the industry who that, that needs to change. So you could turn that into a positive and, and say, well, you know, if, if they come on board and start talking the language at least that, that we need to hear, then that's a step in the right direction. But I think Al Gore's got a point. The the, the real issue here is the the oil producing countries, the richer oil producing countries, need to change and need to pay substantially the poorer countries in their efforts to to change because they can't do it uh, at all without that. And, and that hasn't happened. There has been some sort of agreements and tentative uh, sums mentioned at previous COP meetings, uh, but that has not happened. So yes, I think the host uh, in particular, the person and also the, the industry they represent, really was not at all suitable and it really needs to be or a country that really needs to call for change immediate. And once again, we need to see some demonstrable sign to a target within the next year that is then met, uh, a tangible, quantified target that's met. And and then we can all start to to really believe that we are moving in the right direction at the moment. It's difficult, I think everybody's holding their breath to see see what what happens next, the rhetoric's there, but what about the reality? So yes, the UAE, not not an ideal host,
3: Okay, but Mike, um, if we consider the historical contribution of the United States to carbon emissions, and also its its current high consumption levels, is it fair for Aragorn to to demand changes from uh, oil producing nations without addressing his own country's continued demand for oil? So does does this this situation raises uh, concerns about hypocrisy or, or a potential double standard in the climate discourse?
1: I think it's a very, very good point, and I think yes, it, it, that that is—I um, mean, hypocrisy is probably the right word there. I think it's very, very easy for for richer countries, and Al Gore, for example, to to point the finger, but they need to look closer to home, and we need to look at um, major lifestyle change. This this is something that governments can really um, sort of rule out or root out and inspect and, and and impose. Uh, all sorts of fines. People need to, to, to change the way they live and uh, rely less on f- fossil fuels when it comes to transportation uh, and, and other aspects of their lives. So, so, yes, I think it's a very, very good point. And the U.S. in particular are you know oil-guzzling consumers, and that really is something that really um, hasn't been addressed. Governments are powerful, but they are not all powerful. Uh, and, and it comes down to, ultimately... It all comes down to consumers, and American consumers are amongst the, uh, the, the the most guilty. I think is the word when it comes to uh, fossil fuel consumption. So, so I think that's a very very good point. Yeah.
3: Okay. So so imagine. What's your thought on on the distribution of um, responsibility and accountability? You know, some representatives even argue that blaming oil producing nations for climate change is an attempt to turn the table. How do you look at this?
2: Yeah, I think in the UAE consensus document, uh, uh, we noticed that it recognised uh, the uh, UN FCCC uh, uh, principle, uh, the UN principle that uh, common but differentiated uh, responsibilities. Uh, this is um, is based on the uh, understanding that uh, the current climate change uh, has been led to by the historic. Accumulation of the greenhouse gases, particularly the carbon dioxide emission, since the industrial revolution, and uh, mainly by the industrialized uh, countries. Uh, so uh, this principle have uh, again be be reiterated and will be upheld for that reason. Having said that, uh, obviously the the whole world, you know. Uh, uh, economic and social landscape is uh, is quickly evolving and um uh, as um uh, countries like china and india and um and and some of the oil producing countries are getting you know the economy continue to grow and uh, uh and the emission is also uh going up you know that that's the very reason for after Kyoto protocol the paris agreement has been signed uh, which uh now, from this phase, you know all countries uh, uh, have been involved. Uh, I think it's um, it's very positive for China and the United States to sign the Sunnyland Declaration before this COP28. Uh, it actually helped to pave the way for today's relative success of the COP28 meeting. In that declaration, uh, the the two countries are. Uh, have agreed on several very important things. One of that is triple the uh, renewable energy capacity and uh, double the improvement of uh, energy efficiency. The second one is uh, try to uh, move away from fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and gas. And then the the third one is about methane uh, and other non-carbon greenhouse gases. And all of this... Uh, have helped to set the stage at, uh, at COP28 for more countries to join and eventually come up with, with this consensus. That, uh, because China and U.S. put together is 40% of the global carbon emission. And it is uh, absolutely crucial for the two countries to, to work together, um, and uh, both bilaterally and also facilitate the multilateral uh, process.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and, and Changhua um, notably there was a heavy presence of people affiliated with oil and and gas industries at the summit. And that raised concerns about industry interests overshadowing climate actions uh, with one climate activist likening them to arms dealers attending a peace conference. Um, So do you believe this criticism is justified or do you think it is essential for climate conferences like this to include perspectives from various stakeholders?
0: Well, I, I don't think there's this fairness to have this sort of opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. In reality, I think, of course, this is the largest ever COP. Uh, you know, nearly 100,000 people play in the process, mostly physically and thousands online as well, right? And uh, among that, a large group of, uh, you know, delegates Uh, So about a few thousand people probably either directly from fossil fuel industries or some of them actually more like regarded Mm -hmm. as a lobbyist or PR firms, whatever, representing actually or advocating for fossil fuel industries there. So, yes, that's a harsh reality we have to deal with. But in the meantime, as we're talking about here today, our current economy and uh, infrastructure, everything mostly built on the fossil fuel industries, right? And uh, so this is, you know, the, this is sort of pivotal moment to have everyone together to to shift to transition away from fossil fuels. There, so instead of keeping them away, uh, I think the better option is to be more inclusive. Uh, like Sultan in Al Jaber, the president of the COP 28, said himself, he, he felt when he was blamed for, you know, people challenging his sort of uh, objectivity in that sort of position. I think his, his stance, he's been saying very firmly, said, actually, because of my role, my connection with the fossil fuel industry, so I, I can be more inclusive, right? And to, have, to bridge this sort of conversation with the fossil industries there, I respect that sort of opinion there as well. But more importantly, as we were talking about here today, and uh, we need to be delighted to see that geopolitics actually didn't derail, derail the global process, just imagining how complicated the complex the world situation we're in today right and we have two wars at least actually and uh, then we have this sort of you know sort of geopolitics between the two largest economies there as well so there were lots of concerns worries even fears actually leading up to COP28 so martin just mentioned actually the Sunnyland, the US China joint climate statements really helped uh, you know uh, tremendously Because that sort of adds this uh, essential piece of the puzzle, assurance that, uh, you know, the confidence that the two largest economies will work together uh, to support a successful global process. But in the meantime, just look at the content of the Sunnyland Joint Declaration, even though it to a certain extent set the tone for the transitioning away from fossil fuels for the COP28 process. But actually, the end result turned out to be much more ambitious than that right? Because the global community's demands for immediate, uh, much more ambitious sort of the level of the actions are there. So, uh, you know, all those forces are coming together. We ended up to have what we have today. But in the meantime, it's far from adequate. Uh, you know, next stage, we'll see what specific targets the countries will bring together. Uh, leading up to 2035, the new NDCs, in order to say, okay, you really honor your commitments in the COP28, uh, you know, final consensus, and we need to align your next stage of targets with the 1.5 degree Celsius global warming target by the end of the century. Uh, so we'll see, fingers crossed. But as I said, good starting point, but a challenging road ahead.
3: Thank you. We've been talking to Hu Changhua, acting chair of the governing council of Asia Pacific Water Forum. Ma Jun, Director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing based NGO, and Mike Bastian, Senior Lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. We'll continue our discussion after a short break. You're listening to Chat Lounge. I'm Zhao Ying, joined by Wu Changhua, acting chair of the Governing Council of Asia Pacific Water Forum, Ma Jun, director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO, and Mike Boston, senior lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. So Mike, in your opinion, how can multinational corporations in the fossil fuel industry take Greater responsibility for their role in climate change, and and should there be specific commitments or accountability measures for corporations in international agreements?
1: I think the latter is very, very important. It's very difficult for multinationals to 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 change in, in this the fossil fuel industries to, to change. They are largely driven by shareholders, shareholder investment. So their share price, their financial performance is key. Uh, in the short term, and, and they have to really keep doing what they're doing. And if anything expands, the, the, the rumors are that um, uh, there are quite a few deals cut in the oil and gas industry at this summit, incredibly, uh, to expand production. So I, I think it, what can they do? I think they need to be forced to do. I think that this is where government initially has to really set the ball rolling and, and impose uh, targets, financial penalties, and force multinationals to transition away from fossil fuels to cleaner renewable energy systems, however long that takes. And, and that may, this, this may be a long, long, long winding road, but it needs to, to start, and it hasn't really started. So I, I'm not sure that multinationals, if you rely on multinationals, private sector companies to change, uh, then you're going to be wringing for a long, very, very long time because they they can't, and uh, not necessarily say won't they, they just can't change the system won't allow them to change. So government has to impose change, uh, and, and we haven't really seen that in this summit, even though the language is encouraging.
3: Okay, so Ma Jun, I, I mean, how can fossil fuel industry be encouraged to take responsibility for uh, like to prevent climate change or? I mean there's an obvious conflict of interest there right or do you do you think there could be some kind of middle ground where the fossil fuel industry can coexist with sustainable energy solutions during the transition period
2: Yes the very country that has been selected to host this uh, COP28 uh, is controversial and and then of course uh, the the president of the COP meeting uh, he himself is uh, the head of the largest oil Oil company of uh, of UAE, so of course even bigger uh, controversial. Yeah, even before the opening of this COP28. But on the other hand, you know, as a Chinese farmer goes, if you want the tiger's cub, then you need to go to the tiger's den. In some way, you know, for so many um, people, uh, this time, you know, uh, about 100,000 participants. Went to Dubai to attend this meeting. Uh, most of them uh, carried you know, very very strong uh, idea on the fossil fuel. So, so for the, all these voices to be picked up and to be, you know, to be made, uh, to be voiced. Uh, so much concern be voiced in Dubai and, um, you know, COP28 has uh, hopefully can be picked up uh, by the oil company there. I hope they can hear this and. They can understand that the future is not on the fossil fuel side, uh, so they have to transition. Having said that, uh, we need to also create a real uh, mechanism to you know to create accountability and uh, in the meantime create some uh, uh, stimulus uh, to make that happen. You know we as an organization, IPE, we participated partners with the uh, NRDC and the uh, Chinese uh, Academy of power electricity uh, in north China and they and, and to create it, uh, a transition index uh, to assess the performance of thirty one major listed companies uh, uh, which uh, which is heavily uh, dependent on on fossil fuel particularly on coal so we we assess their performance and we can hopefully identify those who are really walk the walk uh, to really try to transition away from the fossil fuel, uh, but also, of course, identify some of them, just talk the talk. Uh, and hopefully the index index could be used by those uh, uh, investors, those big banks, which claim that they want to uh, provide financial support uh, to facilitate the transition. I think this is a very key issue because, you know, in some of the internal discussion I participated uh, I was really a bit shocked to hear some of the leading, uh, some of the most senior managers of the, of the leading oil and gas companies in the world, and most of them not coming from the Middle East, from the Gulf region. Uh, most of them are located in Western countries, in Europe and America. Um, it's shocking to hear that they, their logic is that uh, uh, they, they have to perpetuate their business, uh, because only by drilling the oil and gas, um, they can create even bigger holes underground uh, to capture and store those uh, carbon emissions uh, from the fossil fuel consumption. I mean, this is this logic is shocking. You know, mm-hmm. they, my impression is that even the Chinese coal companies, uh, they have more understanding that there's no future on the fossil fuel side mm-hmm. uh, direction. They need to transition. Uh, but those big oil companies in the West, uh, some of them still obviously not trying to do that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Changhua, can you help us understand China's stance on transitional transitioning away from fossil fuels and how would you assess China's efforts in this regard?
0: Sure. Uh, but before I get on that, I want to help finish up a little bit the conversation mm-hmm. around the private sector. Uh, So even though it has been challenging and for fossil fuel industry to transform, and if you look at the current global investments in renewable energy sector, out of this $1.8 trillion last year, or barely only 1% actually from oil and the gas industry, investing in new renewable uh, energy uh, sector, uh, that tells you something, meaning they are not really Proactively, you know, transitioning or transforming themselves as well. But in the meantime, actually, I am hopeful at this very moment for a few things. One, with all the governments actually signing up to uh, this, uh, you know, UAE consensus, that means that you you can expect more government policy incentives actually to be put together to create probably the largest ever marketplace for you know, clean energy for, you know, clean energy or modern energy system there. And such incentives will definitely uh, attract more, uh, you know, financial flows. And uh, you know, BlackRock just came out today saying, you know, they see the way the consensus actually reached at the COP28 as the mega force uh, to unleash unprecedented uh, sort of amount of financial investment towards uh, renewable energy, energy efficiency, clean technologies there. And we all we all know technologies are available, right? And uh, and the public demand, the you are demanding for change. So all the major drivers around the next next level next the new marketplace actually already coming together financial institutions are demanding for transparency right and accountability there as well so from that perspective i feel very hopeful now shifting to china china uh, even though continues to be stuck in this according uh, like the coal, the curse of coal but in the meantime china has made a very strong very convincing case in terms of clean energy transition uh, just look at the wind, solar, EV, and the battery technologies. Uh, typical, you know, every popularly known actually not only in China but also globally. Uh, so today, if you look at the marketplace in China, and uh, so uh, you know, we have about half of installed uh, you know uh, power electricity capacity already uh, coming from uh, non fossil fuels already. And if you look at the, the, the deployment penetration of EVs, actually about 30%, more than 30% of, uh, you know, the fleet running on the street are already EVs there. Now, from economics perspective, we know if a new product actually coming to the market, also taking about three to 5% of the market share, the trend is hard to reverse anymore, right? So China compared to many other countries probably is positioned uniquely you a know, sort of, uh, you know, strong government support, you know, incentives and, uh, you know, incentivizing the fast industrialization of clean energy technology manufacturing capacity. That's why we end up actually leading global value chains there. In the meantime, incentives targets were put together to really scale the deployment of those solutions in reality. So when the scale is up, the economy of scale is so obvious, right? If you look at the solar, energy in particular solar is the least cost, uh, you know, clean energy solution today, not only for China, but also globally there as well. Now, this sort of leadership in transition or the case, the China case, is well known, well recognized somehow uh, at the COP process. One particular Hmm. session I participated, you know, panel, I participated uh, during the COP uh, process was to talk about really China's, you know, case, and particularly through the angle of negative tipping points versus you know positive tipping points, the negative negative tipping points pretty much tells us how devastating the intensified climate disasters we're in today. You know, with all the losses, damages, particular for the most vulnerable countries and people, communities there. But China has made the case uh, possible to really create the unprecedented positive tipping points to counterbalance. That sort of a negative tipping points, And that case is made and definitely has played a very major role in terms of getting level of confidence from the global community that we have solutions today, particularly around the renewable energy. Of course, with the new technologies, we can continue to improve energy efficiency and really transition away from fossil fuels. Without China's contribution, I doubted it very much. That the global community would have reached this far, or would have a, be able to have this sort of level of confidence to come to the consensus. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, Mike, uh, what do you make of the role of uh, technological innovation in facilitating a sustainable energy transition? And and do you think there are some uh, specific emerging technologies that we should prioritize or focus on?
1: I think there are. I think you, you hit uh, uh, on, on a. Uh, perhaps the key point in terms of change in this transition. So certainly when it comes to the technology for uh, electric cars uh, and the batteries, and and again, China's leading the world most definitely in that area, uh, that is a very, very important development. So technological innovation will allow, for example, transportation to be cleaner. um, And electric cars, I think, will become the norm very, very soon. Uh, sales have increased quite significantly. Yeah, I think there are issues, uh, safety issues, for example. But I think that's one example where technology will really facilitate um, irreversible change. Uh, and I think there are others. Yes, I, I don't think that um, the, the, the 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 governments can really do much. I think the private sector has a key role to play here. So so whilst I say that the the, the oil and gas industries need to be uh, held accountable that governments really need to impose targets and financial penalties. It's also the private sector that will will prove to be most creative, most entrepreneurial, particularly small businesses, in in, um, developing these new technologies that allow for climate change targets to actually be reached. I think electric cars is a very, very uh, good example. Obviously, when it comes to solar power uh, and wind power, and I, yeah, I think the, the technology that will harness that more and more effectively and, and more cost-effectively, uh, we will see more homes and more, more sort of people investing in that. Uh, I think that's the way forward as well. So, so technology very much is the answer, yes, and I think the private sector and entrepreneurial spirit is is the, the way to unleash that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so my um as we discuss technological innovations, how can international collaboration and knowledge sharing play a role in accelerating the development and adoption of, of, of these innovations, especially for developing countries?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, eventually we need, we need to address the climate change uh, through uh, the development of technology and through innovation very much agree with Mike to say that, uh, you know, renewable energy side, because of, uh, with the energy transition, in the best path towards just uh, uh, an orderly and really an equitable transition is uh, to go through the uh, renewable energy, because renewable energy resources uh, like uh, solar and, and wind resources are so much more evenly distributed. Uh, globally, in comparison with fossil fuel, so it um, it can be made more equitable it can, it can actually be a great help uh, to the global south, not just the, in energy transition but also in uh, providing the uh, the basic access to the power electricity to the services. so I think it, it will be great and so how to facilitate that? Uh, uh, I think it is so important if we all agree that, uh, that this um, climate change is the real you know, existential threat to the human being, then we absolutely need to unite to try to tap into the, the best technology available. So far, you know, different countries uh, have their own innovative power and, um, uh, in some of the aspects, particularly on the, on the renewable side. Uh, you know china uh, has been a leading not just a leading manufacturer but also a leading uh, innovator supplying the world with eighty percent of the solar panels and fifty percent of the wind turbines and about sixty percent of the um, of the battery for e vehicles there's a very big opportunity in the south south collaboration through this you know China can really help. The Africa and uh, South and Southeast Asia and Latin America to go through a cleaner transition in a much faster way if uh, we can work together. But this time, of course, you know we also understand that uh, uh, this is going to be a whole supply chain. You know we need to manage the uh, the risks of uh, of the whole supply chain from cradles to graveyards and basically from the mining of all this. Uh, uh, critical uh, metal uh, We need to manage the risks of that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we also uh, need to make sure that it, uh, this whole capacity has been deployed, distributed uh, more fairly and evenly so that uh, everyone can benefit through the transition, uh, not just uh, uh, one single country. So on that, um, you know, this time uh, at COP28, I also participated in some of the uh, meetings organized by Chinese leading Chinese uh, renewable energy and other companies uh, i I sense that uh, they they got a uh, a basic understanding about this point
3: okay so uh, Chianghua, let's talk about this 1.5 uh, degree Celsius target that was agreed upon uh, back in 2015 in the Paris climate accord um so given the current trajectory. Um, Some say that we are already falling short of this target and maybe we should um, just shift our focus towards adapting to this new reality and try to mitigate the damages. How do you look at this?
0: Uh, Well, I don't think this is a sort of a neither or sort of a question or equation, Uh, but rather, uh, yes, we have to uh, face the harsh reality uh, because the gap Uh, between uh, what we said we're going to do and the actions. That's why the first global start taking Uh, was conducted and concluded, and that formed the fundamental uh, foundation for the the UAE consensus there. So we sort of understand what the gaps are to large extent, as we also know the the root causes. That's why global community agrees to really focusing on the elephant in the room, which is the fossil fuels for the first time ever. And uh, if just a look at uh, the, the the trend from a science perspective, recent U- UK Met Office came out saying, uh, you know, this year we're pretty much reaching at about 1.2 1.3 degrees Celsius warming already compared to pre-industrial industrialization process. And um, uh, next year 2024, which is around the corner, we will pretty much have the high probability of crossing uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Uh, you know, target there, but doesn't mean we're going to stay there forever because the natural fluctuations will bring down the, the temperatures there. Now, by saying that, and so we do need to adapt because uh, we are on, in this trajectory of, uh, you know, up to three degrees sort of uh, warming uh, trajectory. And so we have to adapt. That's the reality we have to, you know, sort of somehow accept. So on one side, we need to mitigate as quickly as possible. And in the meantime, we need to adapt. Now back to the question, early question you asked about you know the capacity building. So the particular phrase called the means of implementation in the Paris Agreement, which has been. Uh, you know, through all the negotiation process, that's a very, very important piece of the puzzle, because even for the transitioning away from fossil fuels, for emerging economies and other developing countries, smaller, vulnerable countries there, they need financing. They need the capability support, they need technology in order to make sure we transit you know together away from fossil fuels rather than being left behind. One key challenge, which is, a sort of burning point actually at the very, until the very end of the negotiation is about money, right? Particular money for adaptation, not only for mitigation, but also for adaptation there, right? Mm-hmm. The committed, the to the climate finance, it just lacks too far behind what's needed at this moment. Even though progress is made on the first day, actually, to operationalize the new loss and the funds, you know, loss and damage fund. But if you look at the pledge financing today, it's barely about 700 million dollars, put that in the context of what what the UN says in terms of what it needs, it needs every year, which is about 400 billion dollars a year, it's nothing, it's a, a drop in the ocean literally, right? So that's another side of the negotiation away from transitioning, but also in terms of financing, the means of implementation, which has been clearly, clearly stated actually in the Paris Agreement, including financial support, including technology support, transfer, as well as capacity building. So from that perspective, in order to really move forward with the transitioning away from fossil fuels, global community has to really work together developed countries that have to put their money on the table in those different parts in order to really support the global transitioning process. Otherwise, it will remain more like a talking than walking. Hmm.
3: Okay. So, Mike, um, as we know, in the pursuit of a greener future, it is essential to consider the real life impact on communities um, as we've seen in um, instances like indigenous people in Brazil opposing wind turbines on their land or French yellow vests protecting against higher fuel taxes. So how do you think we can ensure that um, the shift to a low carbon economy is a just transition and and that the vulnerable communities are not disproportionately affected by this shift?
1: I think it's a very, very difficult um Issue the, the 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 countries that are developing uh, really a can't afford to actually to, to, to make this transition themselves. It's it has to be very very gradual, uh, and they need help. So I, I think how do you actually? Uh, for example, you, you mentioned that the the example of Brazil. There are other emerging nations where they are heavily dependent on fossil fuels, and will be for quite some time. I think it has to be phased out. I think it, it, there's no other answer other than uh, direct and substantial financial support from richer countries. And that has to be somehow uh, agreed by richer countries to, to help out the poorer countries. And, and whether that will happen and, and how much that will happen it really is the issue. Now, they all attended the, the, the COP28 summit, uh, representatives at least, uh, very senior representatives from the richer countries, but they haven't actually agreed to uh, commit financially. So I think the, 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 the poorer countries really just need financial support from richer countries. I think there's no way around that. But how you actually make that happen is, is really is, is the issue going forward.
3: Okay, so imagine your thought on this? What do you think can be done to prioritize the needs and perspectives of marginalized communities to ensure that no one is left behind in the transition to a greener future?
2: Uh, yes, uh, this time, uh, uh, again, this uh, issue of the marginalized communities and uh, the most vulnerable countries have been highlighted. Uh, uh, but in reality, it's, you know, the actions are uh, far from being sufficient, uh, actions taken. You know, all this, for example, the $100 billion funding, uh, which has been committed a uh, long time ago, has now been, still not been fully delivered. You know, this time, uh, the whole country, UAE, has made a very generous gesture to do- donate money uh, into the pool. And in the meantime, some of the leading countries uh, have not actually, you know, the big historic emitters have not actually followed suit. This is very unfortunate. Hopefully, you know, this issue will continue to get attention. Um, and in the meantime, I think it's uh, it's also Uh, Very important, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, for the best uh, technologies and best, uh, you know, the the most cost-effective solutions uh, to be applied and deployed more quickly, more rapidly in the world. Mm -hmm. The, The innovation made by some of the leading Chinese companies have helped to cut the price. Of, uh, uh, of wind power equipment uh, by roughly eighty percent during the past more than ten years, and uh, and on the solar side, it's nearly ninety percent um, uh, cost reduction have been achieved, and uh, and there's a further more potential potential on that. So I hope that uh, uh, the whole world can come to agreement for more free trade on all these. Uh, New uh, technologies and uh, and equipment. Uh, mm-hmm. um, instead of uh, trying to uh, resort to some of the trade uh, protectionism or unilateral trade barriers that set those barriers, up, because those going to slow down the, uh, the 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 application of the best technology and um, uh, going to have an impact, and not just on the. Uh, on those uh, marginalized uh, communities in the global South, but even uh, and, uh, on those uh, uh, marginalized communities, and even in the Western countries, yes. uh, the inflation is so high. You know, this uh, uh, the trade uh, treat barrier will will further raise the uh, the cost mm-hmm. and, and, and the price.
3: Yes, and, and Changhua, one last question for you. Um, we know that shifting away from fossil fuels requires not just policy changes, but also cultural shifts. So how do you think, um, how can individuals and communities be encouraged to transform towards sustainable lifestyles and consumption patterns that reduce reliance
0: on fossil fuels? We are all in together, right? And just imagining, we are talking about negotiations. We, we have to convince every single country, government actually, politicians to accept the reality. And we, in the meantime, we need to make sure all the private sector companies, business community coming with us. Of course, from the global community perspective, uh, we do need to bring, make sure bring every individual together. I, I have no doubt about it. I think that's really hopeful. We're going to get there. But very importantly, I do want to bring up one sort of sign of hope, which is about the redesigning process. If you look at the solar energy, we need to look at the solar energy and the synergy co-benefits with other SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Very encouragingly, in the consensus document, we are talking about the transition away from fossil fuels in the context of sustainable development goals, which is fascinating for us to really reimagining and reset our transition pathway forward.
3: Okay, thank you, Wu Changhua, Acting Chair of the Governing Council of Asia-Pacific Water Forum, Ma Jun, Director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO, and Mike Bastian, Senior Lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. Okay. Thank you again for being with us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Chat Lounge. Thank you for listening. See you next time.